Hi, and welcome to Shireside Chats, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring conversations with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that made them who they are. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today I'll be speaking with someone who is a friend, but also a Jedi master of podcasting, and she's going to be talking to me about the Muppets and how they helped make her one of the most important legal commentators in America. Dahlia Lithwick is a regular contributing analyst at MSNBC and senior editor at Slate Magazine, where she's been writing their Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns since 1999. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republic, Commentary, and many other places. Dahlia is the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Among her many accolades, too many to list here, Dahlia won a Gracie Award for Amicus Presents The Class of RBG, where Dahlia captured the last in-person audio interview with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dahlia has also testified before Congress and appeared on numerous television programs, including The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show. There are no spoiler alerts for today, but before we get started, just a quick reminder that this is an independently produced podcast, and you can support the podcast and Fandom Forward by visiting fandomforward.org slash donate, or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash fandomforward. Now, on to the show. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to Shireside Chats. How are you doing today? It's so good to be with you. It's so good to see you. Thank you for including me on this brilliant concept you have launched. Oh my God, I'm making like a Kermit the Frog face. So excited. I have my head tilted back, like the big (laughs) open maw. Just so, so excited to have you here. Because that's what we're going to talk about, the Muppets. But first, I would love to talk to you about... Lady Justice and the writing and podcasting that led to this moment in your career. So what have you been up to? I have been up to, Sabrina, I tell people that the single best thing that happened, you know, this is a book that was about, as you know better than everyone, and folks should know that Sabrina helped launch this book because there was a gentle text to me when I first started doing publicity in which Sabrina said, did you know your Instagram is set to private? Like, I really, really, do you remember? Um, yeah. Did not know how to do this. And so Sabrina was, without a doubt, uh, the big brain that launched this book and helped get us on the bestseller list. So so I, I do tell people that the best thing about writing a book in September about how women Women in organizing and power would change the world is that the November midterms vindicated that. In other words, if the midterms had gone the way people were predicting and women just didn't care and they didn't march and they didn't get it on ballot initiatives and work for abortion and work for guns, like this would have been a very depressing winter with this book. But because the book kind of was proven, the the central thesis was proven to be true, which is once you activate women, they can change the world and they can use the law to do it. Um, It's been very fun to be, I mean, admittedly, I I think I told you in the green room before we started, I've been in like seven time zones in the last two weeks. I've been traveling. I've been to book festivals. People are worried and stressed, but it is so great to have come out with a book that is making people feel like, oh, here's 
maybe a blueprint to power. And so in that sense, it's as just as the book is right on that like crazy scene between hope and despair, uh, the last couple of months have been similarly on the crazy scene between hope and despair. But it's nice to be out in the world where people are feeling those two things and want to be pushed toward hope. Right on. So this book is about the sexiest of topics, Supreme Court history, or rather recent history, and the women who went up against the Trump administration, particularly in the courts, um, with a focus on the Supreme Court. You have been covering the Supreme Court for many, many years. It's your thing. It's the thing that you podcast about on Amicus. People more recently have started paying attention to what's happening in the Supreme Court Have you noticed that shift in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think there were a couple of phases. I think, um, you know, you you can map it onto the cases, right? People started, you know, Citizens United happened. People were furious. Shelby County happened. Um, That was the case that... um, pulled out the heart of the Voting Rights Act. So you can kind of go by cases and say, you know, the court was doing one thing after another, ending last term in Dobbs, right, reversing Roe. I think the other way to look at it is just questions around the composition of the court, you know, the refusal to give Merrick Garland a confirmation hearing, the unbelievable heat around the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, and then Amy Coney Barrett kind of getting rammed onto the court while voting had already started in the 2020 election. So I think you can kind of either talk about the people waking up to the importance of the court because cases were happening that were shocking them, or because it seemed as though the court was being manipulated uh, by one side so that certain outcomes could happen. And then I just think there's this whole other layer in the last year or so, which is misbehavior, you know, Clarence Thomas sitting on cases where his wife was involved, materially involved in January 6th, and he's sitting on January 6th cases, the leak of the Dobbs opinion, you know, the refusal of the court to abide by ethics rules. So I think it's it's almost like a like a three-layer, I'll talk to you in food, uh, because it is the thing we have in common, but it's like a, a three-layer tort, if you will, and people have sort of dipped in either on the questions of, holy cow, the court just you know, did away with all gun regulation in, with the stroke of a pen. The court did away with 50 years of reproductive rights law with the stroke of a pen or, you know, still sitting in shock over Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed without truly investigating the claims against him. Or, as I said, a lot of other stuff that has risen for people where the court is just behaving badly, deciding things on the shadow docket late at night with three sentences. And I think some in that sort of maelstrom of of news, uh, people who tended to think of the court as this quasi-oracular, you know, holy place on the hill that called balls and strikes and was removed from politics. I think for most people, that's fallen away. So these are not very easy concepts for most people to understand. Constitutional law, terms like the shadow docket, I'm not even sure that many of our listeners will know a lot of these terms, but you've really made a career out of contextualizing and making these concepts accessible to people. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you do that? First of all, thank you. That's very kind. 
part of it was taking the decision very early on in my career that a lot of people who wrote about the Supreme Court and wrote about constitutional law and doctrine were kind of writing for the law professors, you know, that they really wanted the like fancy pants at Yale and Harvard to think they were smart. And what I realized very quickly was those people were never going to be particularly impressed with me. Mostly I just told jokes. And what That's I That's a lie, to... by the way. You're well, incredibly impressive. Well, but I think what I wanted to do was to sort of, I, 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 maybe I put it this way, Sabrina, when I first had my kids when they were little, I would have moms at the bus stop say like, oh, you know, I don't read you because I don't really understand the Supreme Court. And it became my mission to be like, no, I want people to read about the Supreme Court the way they read about, you know, sports or science, you know, that I wanted to be kind of a bridge between a whole bunch of fancy doctrinal words and people understanding this was urgently important to their lives. And in some ways, the court did a lot of the heavy lifting for me, as I said, because they've made themselves uh, urgently important in people's lives. And I think millions of people who didn't really get their hackles raised about the Supreme Court, you know, changed their mind uh, in the last year or two when the court, you know, gutted the EPA's power to regulate climate emissions. As I said, you know, struck down gun laws that have existed for 100 years, struck down Roe. So I think the court has helped me make the court central to people's lives. But I've also felt really comfortable trying to explain in ways that would help people who thought this was inaccessible understand that it's not just accessible, it's like unbelievably relevant to democracy itself. And so that's been kind of the project. And I think in the time that I've been doing this, there's been many, many, many people who are really good at this. But I think it kind of opened a space uh, to talk about the court in a less rarefied, less like, oh, let me perform my smartness for you. And more, I'm going to try to tell you the three things you need to understand about this case so that you can you know, ha know that you have skin in the game. And so that's been sort of the project. On a much more fun note, in the 23 years that you've been writing for Slate, you've written so many pieces about these important Supreme Court cases. And you wrote a very famous viral piece about Muppet Theory. So that was in 2012. But I will tell you that Muppet Theory has lived on for so many years that my cousins, I didn't know what Muppet Theory was before 2020 or 2021. And my husband's cousins mentioned it in a group chat. And I said, oh, what's that? And they said, oh, my God, you don't know about Muppet Theory. This is a foundational Internet text. And they sent me the article. And when I saw it, I said, oh, I know this writer. And then I got all of these amazing cool points. I was suddenly very, very cool with, with my in-laws. So, so thank you for that. Tell our listeners a little bit about what Muppet Theory is. Okay, but first I have to lead with a story that's almost as hilarious, which is in all of my years covering the court, the only time I ever got a request from the Public Information Office, which is the very august and sober, um, you know, kind of public-facing wing of the court, and they said, one of our clerks is getting married and we wanted to get an autographed article for you. Can can we hook that up and, you know, have it framed? And I said, of course, thinking it was going to be some important, you know, I covered Bush v. Gore, I covered the Affordable Care Act cases, I covered Heller, the gun case, but no, it was Muppet Theory. And I was like, it's, <laughs> it's good to know that even inside the church, uh, I'm most known for Muppet Theory. So yes, it is clearly uh, the most important thing I've ever done. To be followed by Acts, which we can talk about, which is the second most important 
thing I ever wrote for Slate, which is what happened when I wore Axe body spray for an entire week. Um, but that's a different podcast. Um, Muppet Theory is essentially... It occurred to me at some point, and I should note this is all thanks to my son's then first grade teacher, who they were having some kind of festival at school. And this is a person who had like tabbed binders for all the students and cubbies, and you could have like performed surgery in her classroom. She was so meticulous. And then they were sort of out in the hallways doing something with beads, and you could see her eyes were just rolling back in her head like it was too much the chaos and I probably idly said to her wow you are a total order muppet out of your natural habitat you can't function and that afternoon I went home and knocked out order muppet chaos muppet I was sitting I should say with my friends um, Mark McKenna and Amy Woolard in the downtown mall in Charlottesville talking through this idea that every single person in the world is either a chaos muppet or an order muppet and the order muppets are famously people like bert from ernie and bert or kermit the frog you know people who cannot tolerate the world going off the rails and the chaos muppets are grover and ernie bunsen honeydew and the swedish chef right like there's and it became i mean honestly i think it took me an hour and a half to write it and it still is a thing that and this is the best part of it of even better than the supreme court asking uh for a signed copy People use it in their sermons. People use it in their wedding vows. I mean, the number of people who've had Chaos Muppet, Order Muppet deployed as part of their wedding vows would make your hair curl. And it's so crazy because it just spoke to something (laughs) in the way, you know, we just think about how we move through the world. But I guess the only other thing I would say is we are such Muppet heads. You know this about us, Sabrina, but people don't know that like both of my children were obsessed. Kobe was obsessed with Cookie Monster, so much so that we dressed up as Cookie Monster. Both his dad and I dressed up as Cookie Monster for Halloween when he was two. We didn't think it made sense to dress him up because he couldn't see himself. (laughs) So we're like, we should dress up. Like, why don't people understand this? And then the, like, babysitter dropped him off and he was so excited, he, like, puked right down the, like, mouth of my Cookie Monster costume. No! But he was, like, without doubt, both of my children, so far, this with Elmo, Kobe with Cookie Monster. Like, Muppets have been, like, the the beating heart, the lifeblood of my family uh, since our kids were born. So I think in some sense the fact that, like, I became an avatar for Muppetry is just so flawlessly perfect because there's nothing in my house that isn't ultimately judged by whether it's fuzzy and blue. That's incredible. And I will say, going back to this Muppet Theory article, it opens with a real bang. Every once in a while, an idea comes along that changes the way we all look at ourselves forever. Like, you do not... Yeah, you, know, you do not come in softly. You're just like, this is going to change the world. It's like Descartes. It's like Marx. It's like, this is a foundational text. And that is very much true. So what kind of Muppet are you then? I think in the article, I describe myself as a chaos Muppet who's pretending to be an order Muppet. Is that correct? I think that I present as an order Muppet. I showed up, you know, five minutes early for this podcast. Like I am unerringly on time and, you know, well-dressed and appropriate, but I am always just a a creature of mayhem. And again, you know this better than everyone because you saw me on my book tour, but I'm always like 
just figuring out what the next thing is and doing as little as I can to prepare. And I just find that like my entire life is held together by sticky notes, which as you know, don't hold together very well. So I think people perceive me as an order Muppet, but there's very little order going on on the inside. Yeah, I was thinking about this question for myself, and I would say that I am probably an order Muppet. When I was a kid and I was bored, I would alphabetize our DVD collection at home. I was like nine years old and alphabetizing the DVDs. And then when I got bored, when I was finished with that and I was still bored, I alphabetized them by MPAA rating, which... I don't know what that is, but that is very much order Muppet behavior, although sometimes I do feel like a chaos Muppet. So I guess my question then is, is it possible to be on a spectrum of orderly versus chaotic? Again, I, I, I'm always loath to diagnose, you know, and I think I say in the piece, it's like wearing white pants, like you have to ask somebody else, like, don't don't just like wear white pants and think they look good. So I, I, I am loath to diagnose others, although I did you hear how quickly I asserted that you're an order Muppet? So I guess I'm loath to diagnose and then quickly um, diagnose. But I think both that there is false consciousness, as I suggested, that you walk around thinking you're one thing, but you're another and everybody knows that. And my younger son really thought he was a chaos Muppet and he, like you, you know, lived to alphabetize and put like label stickers on things. So he's clearly not. And then I think people actually change over their lifetimes. I, I think actually my each of my kids has um, over their short teenage lives, uh, kind of my, my order Muppet has become more of a chaos Muppet and my chaos Muppet has become more of an order Muppet. So I think maybe we evolve. And then the other cornerstone of the theory is that so much of this turns on who you're partnered with, right? Because... One thing that I, I will say, and I don't think this is in the article, but it's true that I had never missed a plane in my life and my husband had never missed a plane in his life. And the first time we missed a plane was the first trip we took together after we got married because we both assumed the other person was the order Muppet. And we sort of just ceded control. And we were like, okay, well, I mean, if he's not rushing to the airport, you want to be really clear with your partner which of you is the order Muppet going forward and not assume that one is going to take the reins. Yeah. In the grand scheme of my marriage, I would say that I'm the order Muppet. So I'm the planner. And then my, I think you're the order yeah, Muppet in yeah. the grand scheme of the planet Earth, to <laughs> oh. be quite frank. I think you might be like right up there at the top of the order Muppet food tree. Um, but oh, shucks. But let's go back a few decades, only only a few. So I believe you told me that you were a fan of the original Muppet show when you were growing up, when you were a wee lass. Tell me how you became a Muppet fan. Was it around that time that, you know, Jim Henson was in his golden age of, of doing the Muppet show and, and kind of just getting started with, with the program and with the movies? I think it was way before. I mean, I think, like, I was one of those kids who grew up with Sesame Street. I grew up, I think I probably, my first love was Cookie Monster. Uh, I'm pretty sure, like, my crush on Kermit the Frog was so acute as a small child. I really, it's possible I'm a reporter because Kermit the Frog was a reporter. I, I'm just thinking of that Muppet News flash, do 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 and he'd be, like, typing away. It's possible I'm just thinking out loud that it goes way back to you are too young to remember this but um there was a very cute little blonde girl who used to do the alphabet with cookie monster i don't remember this specifically but i know that in the jim henson biography the name of which 
escapes me. I just know it's called Jim Henson. I forgot who wrote it, but it opens with Kermit the Frog. The author is describing this little girl who keeps messing up the alphabet with Kermit. Is that who you're talking about? Yes. Although I'm remembering her with, I'm remembering her with Cookie Monster. Now we're going to just have to Google this. Well, and I think that what she starts doing is A, B, C, D, E, F, Cookie Monster. And she's saying Cookie Monster. And then Kermit is, you know, doing that face you described at the top of the show that, you know, he's like losing his mind, which she thinks is hilarious. All of which is to say, I think they were so formative to me. So even before The Muppet Show, which I loved later, I think I was like a classic, classic Sesame Street kid. I was the target demographic. And it was so weird, Sabrina, when we had kids and like... Their entire, like, psychosexual development was bound up with Cookie Monster and Elmo to just be like, oh, my God, history is repeating. But I think that there is something, I don't know what it is, just, like, so fundamentally, like, comforting and, like, simple about these characters that, you know, and I don't, I don't love like Zoe and Abby and like, I'm, I'm a purist, right? Like, I'm like, why are they bringing in like baby Elmo's? What is going on? But I, oh, um, did you, did you hate Elmo in the nineties when they invented Elmo? Yes. I still am not super fond of Elmo. Also, cause I think it's like, you know, deeply destabilizing to talk about yourself in the third person that way. Like D- Donald Trump and Elmo are the only two diagnostic categories who talk about themselves like that. It's not healthy. But um, I'm not a huge fan of Elmo. But yes, I, I think I'm just a purist and I think my kids are purists. And so the idea that I could be like forever bound up in Muppet lore because of something I like knocked off in an afternoon when my son's first grade teacher was having a slow rolling nervous breakdown about beating like that. Nothing could be better to me. Nothing. Yeah. You know, the first line of your obituary is going to be. Exactly. That is it. <laughs> Love them. I will say um, a few years ago, one of the former editors in chief at Slate sent me a note to say, like, did you know that, like, the New York Times is selling some kind of corporate business training using Order Muppets and Chaos? Like, they had totally grifted off the piece and were selling some kind of corporate, you know. And I and I was just like, I guess, you know, it's a good idea when, like, people are grifting off you and not. Yeah, but you me- should be you should be leading that training, though. And if you yes. ever want to co-lead a Muppet workshop i would love to do that but but yeah i mean the new york times has kind of really fallen off the rails recently so (laughs) it was just like come on you guys like make up your own taxonomy of characters for your own training of young soulless corporate drones but don't use my like adorable (laughs) one that was like completely done out of love for muppetry Says every every artist ever. I'm sure that uh, Picasso isn't super psyched about the like mugs with Picassos on them. So anyway, onward. Do you think Picasso was a chaos Muppet or an order Muppet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is actually... No, I mean, I was going to say, it's actually interesting because this is why I sort of... I, I You know, like the Bronte sisters, you know who I identify with? Charlotte, the order Muppet. Always. I like the order Muppets. Emily makes me very, very nervous. I don't like the Chaos Muppet artists. I just, there it is. There it is. So when I think of you, I just think of the Muppets. I mean, I also think of the Supreme Court and everything that's happening in this country and the possible decline of democracy. But mostly I just think of Muppets and the humor of the Muppets and just the joyfulness that they exude. And I see that 
coming from you and your work, even in dark times, even when, you know, you're trying to parse through difficult subject matter. What are the qualities that you like most about Cookie Monster or your other favorite Muppets? I mean, again, I think for me, it goes back to, I'm just going to use the word basic. I think I'm really, really basic. (laughs) And I just think if you can explain like, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis scrutiny, you know, in Supreme Court doctrine using Muppets, you use Muppets. Like, you don't need to use, you know, your first-year con law textbook to do that. And so, for me, I think it does go back to, and by the way, I think this is very gendered in two ways, I will say. Possibly the only controversial thing I'm going to say, other than um, that I didn't like Elmo. Maybe that's really going to be the thing that tanks my career. But if that doesn't tank my career, I would say this is the controversial thing I will say. I think that when women ask me how you kind of get past a lot of the misogyny and trolling and vitriol of public facing life, I think that one of the things that has helped me immensely in my career is humor. Um, I think it's a way to, A, make people feel easier. You know, it it takes the temperature down. I always found, even when I was writing about, as you say, like what feel like existential threats to democracy, if you can couch it in a good metaphor or in a joke or in some kind of self-deprecating joke, it slightly helps people not want to come out and punch you for being a girl. And that has just been right or wrong, something I've done throughout my life. And I, I don't think people should, you know, use humor at the expense of being real and of saying what is true. But I do think it is a way that kind of arrests people out of their normal mode of, you know, I just want to scream all the time and set everyone on fire. And I think that another thing that I have really noticed is that a lot of the women, and I know you and I have talked about this, but a lot of the women that I quote, even in Lady Justice, you know, whether it's Rebecca Solnit or Rebecca Traister or Rachel Maddow or Mary Beard, are people who are really, I think, dedicated to this project of just explaining really carefully and not necessarily performing that they're the smartest person in the room or that they won all the awards, but trying brings people. Heather Cox Richardson is another really good example of this. You know, I think this is, there's just so many women that I think have stepped into the breach in the Trump years, particularly in journalism. Rachel Maddow, I think, is so singularly gifted at, at this. But I really think it's part of just being prepared to listen and then being prepared to explain in a way that is not necessarily a modality that we've had in public intellectual life that much. And so I think for me, you know, what how this relates to Cookie Monster, I'm not entirely sure. But I do think that there's a quality of if you can build a bridge to something serious using something that is familiar or that is non-threatening, then maybe you can get people to meet you sort of halfway to this place where you're talking about stuff that seems really alarming and confusing, but is actually eminently comprehensible. There's this question that's been going around on, on Twitter, my favorite place, about You know, if you were to make a Muppet movie where everyone was a Muppet, but there was one human actor and it's a remake of a movie, what would it be? So so I'm going to ask you that question. That's hard. I'm going to say I'm sure people have said this on Twitter. I've been off Twitter for a couple of months. Like all I do is retweet. It's my quiet 
slink away silently gutless boycott. But so I haven't um, seen what people have said, but I think I would say probably Casablanca and probably I think um, Bogart as Bogart and everyone else in Muppet. Oh, that would be great. Could you imagine Miss Piggy as yes, Ingrid? Of Bird? course. That was, of course, that was stipulated. Now, I have to ask you what your answer is. Lord of the Rings. Uh, of course, of course. Of course. No, no. I would say Lord of the Rings and Aragorn is still Viggo Mortensen. Because yeah. he's so sexy. You have to have Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> but everybody else could be a Muppet. Yeah. Well, that's kind of my Bogart answer. Like, I cannot imagine Kermit playing Bogey. But I could see Miss Piggy doing Bergman. I could see it. She's got a bigger range. Kermit would be Laszlo, like the other guy that she winds up with. Spo- spoilies, spoilies for Casablanca. You've had you've had a hundred <laughs> years. If you haven't seen it, it's your fault. You've had eighty years. Get over it. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of musicals now, just could because it, it would be funny. Um, to do like seven brides for seven brothers or something like just <laughs> shockingly revanchously sexist um, and only have Howard Keel and all Muppets. But I have to this this is something I, I would take very seriously uh, applying Muppets to seven brides for seven brothers. So let's let's stick with Casablanca. Right on. You spoke a little bit about how the Muppets are this big thing for your family. You have a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old, and the Muppets have been at the center of your family life. Do you want to talk about, and this is very self-serving, but do you want to talk about the amazing Hanukkah gift you got this year? Oh my God, you gave me, I, I, I meant to bring it down to my study to show you, but uh, the best Hanukkah gift, not just this year, possibly ever, came from the host of this show who sent me and it's from Etsy like some it's the most exquisite crafted Muppet show display case for little tiny Muppets of which you sent me I have to get more Muppets but you sent me half of the Muppets and it is it's in that Muppet show font and then like there is the Swedish chef and there is animal and there is and it's like can I say this? It's like a nativity scene for us. Like it's like a holy relic <laughs> in this house. And it was the perfect gift uh, because as Sabrina knows, but you all don't, every blanket in my kids' bedrooms to this day is fuzzy and blue. Like we don't put Muppetry behind us. We just expand our Muppet paraphernalia. And so that was the like high watermark, the utter zenith of Hanukkah gifts. I appreciate that. But I do want to know about other Muppet merch. Like, what have you collected over the years and what are some of your other favorites? Well, at one point, Kobe, my eldest son, had probably 20 Cookie Monsters. Like, he was compulsive. They, it was funny. He, was, he had Cookie Bag, Cookie – like, he had names for every one of them and they were all individuated Cookie Monsters. And, you know, Sofer had, like, Dancing Elmo and – Tickle Elmo, like, so they had, like, a, a huge, it, at one point we had a big green garbage bag full of Cookie Monsters. Like, it looked unholy what was going on with that. And so as children, because, you know, like, once you know a kid likes Cookie Monster, he had all the Cookie Monster shirts, he had all the Cookie Monster socks, I had all the Cookie Monster shirts. I already told you about our very, very misguided Cookie Monster Halloween costume. No, no. (laughs) Um, But 
And then for years and years, my husband would wear the Cookie Monster costume on Halloween and just stand on our lawn and terrorize small children. So we, like, there's nobody who doesn't know us as a Muppet family. And it's, like I said, it doesn't, we don't seem to outgrow it, Sabrina. Like, it's not, I can't say. And then we all grew out of it because... Kobe's got like a full on Cookie Monster onesie that he purchased this year. I've got a Cookie Monster nom 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 t-shirt that like you never, I just don't think you ever, I will be the old lady with the walker and the like, oh, and I haven't told you about the hats. I mean, you've seen the photos of the hats. We have three hats that were handmade for us, you know, an Elmo, Oscar the Grouch and a Cookie Monster. And whenever we play rock band, we wear the hats and we sing. It's nothing I'm saying is making me seem like a serious Supreme Court journalist right now. But like the Muppets live on. That's all I can say. I'm biased, but most of the most interesting people I know never grow out of their fandom. Let's let's make that clear. And they are also very serious people. You know, that's the whole point of this podcast is to really think about how our fandoms and pop culture connect us to the people we we become and. You know, if you're 90 years old and you have blue hair because it's age appropriate, but it's really because you love the Cookie Monster, that's okay too. Yeah, I think that the chance of, and and in some sense, this would have been a good family podcast because we can all explain differently how, you know, we've moved like seven houses in the last four years. We've moved so many times, but like the Muppets come with us and it's it's home. So it's all of us. Well, that's wonderful. (laughs) Is there anything else about the Muppets or your work or what you're up to that you'd like to share? We, uh, this I will say, we um, have gotten our hands on in the last couple of years, like really early black and white Jim Henson videos. Have you seen them? Yes. Brian, my husband, loves the coffee commercials with the prototypical Kermit. They are so funny and they're really dark, like they're funny, but they're they're really weird. Yeah, they're so inappropriate and they're so like not the zeitgeist of that moment, you know, where everything was sunny and happy. And these are just like already like really kind of tortured and, and exactly what you're saying, like offbeat. And I have to say, um, if people have not watched some of those, it's it's really a far cry from the like benign anodyne ideas we have about Jim Henson and Muppetry because like those commercials are bananas. I love them. Black and white on the internet and dark AF. Right on. Dahlia, thank you for joining me on Shireside Chats. Thank you so much for having me. I truly feel like I have disclosed more about my inner life on this show than I have in anything I've ever done. So thank you. This is such a smart way to get people to think really carefully about how they came to be who they were. And I'm really grateful to be with you. I'm so glad. Thanks. Shireside Chats is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Sharon Luria, and of course, our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.